Well, I'll be continuing in the uh, Matthew series that you've been uh, going uh, through um, with the Lord Jesus and his passion. Uh, You've seen him betrayed by his uh, friends, uh, abandoned uh, by uh, justice, and now uh, handed over uh, to be crucified uh, today. Uh, If you've got a Bible, do turn to Matthew uh, chapter 27. I think the, the passage in the order of service is um, not quite right. I'm preaching from Matthew 27, verses 27 to 44. So if, you, if you've got a, got a Bible, please uh, open it there. Uh, Matthew 27, verses 27 uh, through uh, to uh, 44. This is, a, this, is, this is a a serious uh, passage. This is a weighty our passage, so let us uh, prepare our hearts as we come to it. Let me read and then I'll pray. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Let's pray for the Lord's help. Our Father, we are uh, the sheep of your pasture and we need weekly to come to you to be fed uh, by your word and to come and to uh, see and remember and hear again of the death of our Lord Jesus in our place, of what he suffered uh, for our sake. And so uh, give us hearts to hear And please equip us and strengthen us to live 
uh, for the Lord Jesus this week. Uh, through your word, we pray. Amen. Well, we, we talk about and we hear a lot about uh, King Jesus. Uh, many sermons seem to uh, mention him. Uh, we are often called to bow before him and obey him and turn to him and march behind his banner. And I hope uh, you know uh, as a Christian that one of the things you are is, is a servant. You are a servant of a king and your life is to be given in his service. Now, perhaps if you're a visitor this morning uh, or you're new to Christian things or you just joined this church, it may surprise you to find out that, that Christians believe Jesus to be a king. He is the one to whom God has given all power and authority over everything. And there will be a time coming when all people will see that. We talk about King Jesus a lot. Uh, but do you know the story of how he became a king? Uh, we love kingly origin stories, don't we? Of King Arthur and uh, the Round Table. Or of King Aragorn and the Tale of the Ring. Uh, but do you know Jesus' story? Well, it is here this morning in the crucifixion account. Uh, the sermon will have uh, three points. And the first point, we'll consider the big picture of what Matthew is trying to drive home uh, before we dive into two uh, specific aspects. Uh, I think the big picture that Matthew is driving home for us at the cross is this, that the cross really is Jesus's coronation. Now, the cross really is Jesus's coronation. It's not hard to see. Kingship is emphasized three times throughout the passage. The word king comes up again and again. But I suspect that as Christians, we don't tend to think of the cross as a coronation. Because right, we know what coronations are like. Children, here's a, a question for you. Who have you seen recently crowned as a king? Do you know? This King Charles, wasn't it? We live in a generation who knows what it looks like for a king to be crowned, for him to process up an aisle in a golden robe with a grand procession and sit on a magnificent throne and be crowned with a crown full of jewels and for the crowds to rise afterwards and sing, God save the king! And then for him to go home to his palace in a literal golden coach as the crowds cheer. Uh, but, but this morning we have a coronation of, of another kind, don't we? we? We don't find here glory and gold and grandeur, but rather torture and torment and taunting. This is not presented as a, as a coronation that we know, uh, but rather as a mockery of a coronation, as if to say, this is Jesus and he's no more of a king than you or I. We see this uh, throughout the passage. In, in the first section, we have a cruel uh, crowning. In verses 27 through to verse uh, 31, the soldiers take Jesus and they strip him naked and, the, and, the, and then they dress him in all the trappings of royalty. Uh, but with each element, uh, a tool of mockery and cruelty. So for kingly uh, 
clothing in, in verse 28. And they put on him a scarlet robe, probably a centurion's uh, red cape that imitates an emperor's uh, robe. Uh, for a crown, they take bramble uh, branches and they twist them together and, and they force it down upon his head. And then for the royal scepter of power, just a reed, a bamboo stick in his hand. And then they kneel and mock homage and then they salute him in language that, that, that would be used for an emperor. Hail, king of the Jews, in verse 29. And they rise and strike him and spit upon him. As if to say, don't take us seriously. This is just mockery, a bit of fun. After all, what kind of person, what kind of king gets crucified? So there's the cruel crowning and then the passage moves on. There's a criminal enthronement. They take Jesus to, to the place of a skull, Golgotha, uh, a place with, with deathly connotations. They give him wine to drink, mixed with gall. That would have made the wine bitter, unpleasant. It's not, not wine given in mercy, uh, but wine given in mockery, saying, this will help you, Jesus. And he tastes it and then spits it out. And then when Jesus is crucified, verse 35, in verse 37, they, they put a charge, that is, uh, the thing that he is guilty of uh, above his head. And the charge says, this is Jesus, the king of of the Jews, this is his crime, kingship. And is there anything more inappropriate than to label a man who is crucified, who is bleeding and suffocating, who's been strung up naked before the world and then hung between two common criminals, to label that man a king for his throne to be a Roman cross? Uh, the charge above his head, I think, I think is meant to be a little bit of a joke. Maybe an attempt to shame the Jewish nation. Look at your king, Jews. Strung up to die. And then in the final section of the passage, we have the condemnatory crowds. Again, children, you, you might know this, but when a king is crowned and enthroned, what happens? Well, well the crowds rise to cheer and celebrate and praise him. Uh, but here the crowds rise to ridicule. Strangers, strangers who, who don't even know Jesus walk past him, deriding him in verse 39, wagging their heads. Then come his enemies who, who mock him, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And then finally the, rib, the, the criminals, the robbers on either side of him, revile him. And the gist of all the mocking is this. You claim to be powerful, Jesus. You claim to be powerful. You claim to be one, in verse 40, who could destroy a temple and rebuild it in three days. You claim to be, in fact, the son of God himself. You claim to be the king of Israel. You claim to be powerful, but this cross proves you a sham, a fraud, a fake. And so they, they jeer at him, prove us wrong. Save yourself, they laugh. This is a coronation of mockery. Who would serve this king? And yet, Christian, this is your king. You know that? This is your king. This is the king of Christians. And if you know your Bibles, you know that this really is Jesus' coronation 
as king. He really is being crowned and enthroned. How can that be? I think there are two ways to grasp that truth, purpose and prophecy. So, so first of all, purpose. What is being achieved here? Well, we, we know the answer, don't we? We know that Christ is substituting himself for us, that he is a sin-bearing sacrifice so that our sins might not be counted against us, that we might be forgiven by the Lord God and be reconciled to him so we might know him as our father. We know that that is the center of the Christian message, that we are sinners, but that Christ died and now we are saints. And it shows what kind of king Christ came to be. How do we tend to use uh, power? How do human beings tend to use power? Well, well usually, if we're honest, uh, for ourselves. We, we use power to manipulate and control others to revolve around us. To make our lives easier, to subject others to, to serve us. And again and again, we see that in the news and in different places and presidents and in prime ministers and in people like Pontius Pilate. Abuse, after all, is the misuse of power in the service of self. Uh, but, but God gives power not so that you might serve yourself, but so that you might serve those under you. Uh, a king is crowned ultimately to, to serve his people. And no king served his people like this one. This is a king who, who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. A king who comes and takes the place of his people and says to God, let their punishment fall upon me. Who says, strike me, spit on me, mock me, torment me, torture me, murder me so that my people might go free. This is your king. That was his purpose. There's purpose, but there's also prophecy. One of the striking features of this passage is that woven throughout it is a multitude of Old Testament prophecy about God's Messiah, uh, the king in the Old Testament scriptures that God promised to his people. They come predominantly from um, Three places, well, two places, Isaiah and, and the Psalms, particularly Psalm uh, 22 and Psalm 69. I'm just going to go through some of them just so you, you feel it. Uh, so verse uh, 30, 31, uh, the soldiers take Jesus, they beat, they spit upon him and, and they mock him. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike me. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Verse 31, they lead him away to crucify him. Isaiah 53, verse 7. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he was silent. Verse 34, they gave him bitter wine to drink. Psalm 69, verse 21. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Verse 35, they crucify him. Psalm 22, verse 16. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 35, they divide his clothes and cast lots. Psalm 22, they have 
they, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 38, they crucified with him two robbers. Isaiah 53, he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by derided him. Verse 39, they wagged their heads at him. The chief priest says he trusts in God, let God deliver him. Psalm 22, let me read it for you, verse 6 to 8. Again, Psalm 22 is, is a psalm which can, can be put on the lips of Jesus, so that I, in verse 6, is Christ. But I am a worm, Christ speaking, and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. All these passages, passages in, in the Old Testament are passages about God's anointed king, that he would be mocked, that he would be flogged, that he would be crucified. And it is being fulfilled here. So the path to glory for Christ and kingship uh, is the road of suffering on behalf of his people. And there's an irony as well that in mocking him, his enemies around him, they fulfill the, prof- they fulfill the prophecies. So the, the more they mock him, if you like, the more they confirm his true kingship. For his enemies, the great proof against Christ being a king was his crucifixion. But according to the scriptures, the great proof for Christ being our king is also his crucifixion. This is your king, Christian. This is the king God has given you, a king who rules not from a cross, uh, sorry, not from a throne, but from a cross, whose nail-driven hands are reached out, and not not to crush you into service, Uh, but to rescue you, who lived his life to lay it down in death so that we who are spiritually dead might live again. And this this is the kind of king we want to be ruled by, someone who gives all they have to those that they rule. Jesus is that king. This is your king crucified on a Roman cross. And it leads me to uh, two aspects of this passage that I want to consider uh, of our king. Two aspects that we see. Uh, his shame and his love. His shame and his love. So our second point this morning. Can you see the shame our king was willing to endure for our sin? Many of us know what it, what it feels like uh, to be ashamed. We know that the burning heat, the, the sense of exposure, and the desire to run. We know the way our minds obsess about times when we have been shamed and how we hide from those that we've been shamed before. And we fear shame, don't we? Uh, we bury our deepest sins. We, we lie to cover up our guilt. We, we, we dream at night. We have nightmares that our, 
are things that we are ashamed of will be exposed before others. We know what it means to be ashamed. And one of the interesting things about the Old Testament Testament prophecies that we, we looked at just now is it not only proves Christ's kingship on the cross, but if you like, gives us a window into Christ's heart. Let me just read a few more verses from uh, Psalm uh, 69. Psalm 69, verse uh, 19 through to verse 21. Again, Christ uh, speaking. These are, these are words you can put on his lips. He says, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Christ suffers here shame and dishonor. And what was his shame and dishonor? Well, let us go through the first half of the passage again in in verse 27. At this point, Christ has been abandoned uh, by his friends. Uh, The men that he loved and gave himself for in his ministry have, have turned their backs on him and fled. In fact, he's heard Peter, his closest disciple, swearing in the courtyard outside his trial. He does not know him. And now he's been handed over to these soldiers. He's been, in verse 26, already whipped and uh, tortured. And the soldiers then take him. And these soldiers, they have no love for the Jews. Here is a man uh, convicted of being the king of the Jews. He's alone, he's helpless, he's broken, he's bleeding. He has no friends. And so they say to each other, let's call in the lads. Call in the lads. Let's have some fun. Let's play with him. Imagine that circle of school bullies. And they've surrounded, they surrounded the fat kid. And they say to him, yay, fatty, have another cheesecake for shoving him back and forth across the circle. It's something like this. But worse, so much worse, they strip him naked and they dress him up and pay fake homage to him. And then they rise and they do what? They spit on him. Imagine you brought your friend to church and you introduce them to the minister and the minister takes them around the congregation and one by one to each one, he says, Have a good spit. Have a good spit. And you know, many reading this passage think that Jesus may have been sexually abused here. It's not explicit. We can't be certain. It's not the kind of detail I don't think Matthew would record, but he's been stripped naked twice and mocked. It's not uncommon treatment in Roman times for those on death row to be treated that way. It's almost too awful to bear, to talk about. Christ's shame, imagine it. So they've had their fun. They take him out. At this point, verse 32, he's too weak to 
carry the cross and you think that the soldiers who treated him this way would certainly have done that. So they make this man, Simon of Cyrene, do it. Uh, uh, Cyrene is not in Israel, so this man is a foreigner. He's likely here for the Passover. And it tells us one interesting thing. It tells us that they took Jesus out by the main road. So in his shame, the whole world sees him. And then they crucify him. And with that charge of mockery above his head, and he's hung up before all the world to see and then to laugh at as he dies. Throughout preparing this passage, there has been one repeated song in my mind. A song has come into my thoughts again and again. A song is my song, my, my song is love unknown. You may know it. And it has that verse uh, towards the end, which begins, why, why, what has my Lord done? What makes this rage and spite of course the answer is nothing he's done nothing our king was pure to his bones you can imagine instead of Jesus in this passage you think of the the best person you can think of maybe someone you know or, or a famous person like Mother Teresa or, or Nelson Mandela Someone we might recognize as good, as worthy of praise. And yet their goodness was nothing compared to Christ. He was pure to the core of his being. And so the shame he endured, the mocking and the spitting and the laughter and the abuse, was not for anything he did, but was for our sin. So Christian... You must take your sin seriously. There's one thing this morning. You must take your sin seriously. Christ endured the cross because of your sin. And that temptation to sin sometimes is so strong, isn't it? It it lures us in. It entices us. It draws us. and, And we don't feel strong enough to resist it. What can I say to you when that temptation arises this week and and compels you and calls you? Remember Christ. Remember Christ. Remember what Christ did. Remember what your sin cost you. And, And what he endured so that you might not be condemned. So do not let sin reign in your lives, but rather give yourself to Christ. He is a, he is a better king. And it leads us to our second aspect. So there's his shame. And then there is his love. Look at these last few verses from 39 onwards. The love our king showed in our salvation. The love our king showed in our salvation. Verse 40, those strangers who pass by wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're that powerful. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. I wonder, do, do those words sound familiar to you? If you are the son of God? Do you remember the, 
They, they've come up before in Matthew's gospel in the wilderness when the devil came to the Lord Jesus and tempted him. If you are the son of God, then take this stone and turn it into bread. If you are that powerful, use your power for yourself. Even now, Jesus is being tempted. Even now, you can escape the cross. Even now, you don't need to suffer if you really are the son of God. Then verse 42 the chief priests mock him, saying, if he saved others, he cannot save himself. And many of us know the irony of that. That's actually quite true. That if Christ was to save himself, then he would not be able to save others. There would be no sin-bearing sacrifice and no salvation. And he could have done it. Christ did not go to the cross against his will. A prayer to the angels and he would have been rescued. And so what kept him there? What kept him there? Well, friends, it was you. It was you. He loves you. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And you are that joy. For that joy of having you, he despised the shame of the cross. Or more literally, he did not count the shame of the cross a big thing. Not because it wasn't significant in itself, as we've seen, it's monumentous. But because the prize was so great. And you are that prize that Christ considered the cross a worthwhile price to pay to receive you in order to get you. And I don't think that in this age, in the time that you're alive, or even in all eternity, we can ever really grasp how much he loves us and how much he did for us. And then his final words of mockery, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now. If he desires him, if he wants him, if he really loved him, God would save him and rescue him. Of course, there's a sense in which we know that that is true. God did rescue Christ from the grave. But there's also irony as well here that God the Father was never more pleased with his son than when he suffered in the place of sinners, when he bowed his head and was obedient to death, even death on the cross. Out of love, for you and for me. Christian, this is your king. This is your king. So let us worship him. Let us turn to him. Let us forsake our sin. Let us bow the knee before him. And let us give him our whole lives who gave his life out of love for us. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love us, sinners condemned unclean. And so how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And Father, we pray that you'd fill us with the marvel and wonder of all that Christ has done for us. In his name we pray. Amen.